Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. The day that changed the life of this woman was as common as many she'd lived before, but all of the actions and all of the lessons from all of those days worked together to form her into an instrument for change. And then, one common day, Rosa Parks stepped on a bus. The end. Let's talk about Rosa Parks. But first, let's place her in history. In 1955, Marian Anderson became the first black performer at the Met. Scrabble first appeared on the shelves. The Panama Canal Treaty was signed. Elvis Presley made his first ever TV appearance. John Grisham and Kevin Costner were born. James Dean, Albert Einstein, and Carmen Miranda died. And on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks boarded a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, and brought the civil rights movement to the top of a very big hill on a roller coaster. To go along with our Ida Wells podcast, we thought we would give you the story of someone who, within our living memories, exemplified all the same qualities that Ida B. Wells did. Absolutely. And she, if it wasn't for Ida, this woman probably wouldn't have had the opportunity that she had to do what she did. So let's talk about Rosa Parks. She was born on February 4th. 1913. Her real full name is Rosa Louise McCauley. That was her birth name. She uh, was the first child of James McCauley and Leona Edwards McCauley, who were married on the day the doomed Titanic left Southampton. How's that for a place in history? (laughs) So James was a carpenter and a stonemason greatly in demand. He was an excellent worker, and Leona had been a teacher before she married. Very well educated, even taking some college classes. We're talking about Tuskegee. Tuskegee, Alabama, in the early part of the 1900s. The family was one of so many whose life was changed forever by a little bug called the boll weevil, destroyer of cotton crops, destroyer of economies. This family had to move in with the in-laws. Mm. They moved in with James's parents, and Mama Leona had to just hate this. <laughs> she didn't like her in-laws anyway, and now they're all crammed in this little house, and She really couldn't stand it. James dealt with it by taking off, quote, to find work. Mm. Brother Sylvester was born, I don't know how, because he took off and basically didn't come back. So, Leona's a single mother. Living with her in-laws. It's very awkward. (laughs) So, Mama fled to be with her own family in Pine Level, Alabama. And so her grandparents became so very, very important in her life. Mama went back to teaching. So she was a working single mother. Mm -hmm. Grandpa, in particular, was a great influence on little Rosette. There's some interesting facts about old Grandpa Edwards. Number one, he looked white because he had a lot of white ancestry. Mm -hmm. Number two, he did not like white folk. (laughs) Because he, as a small child and a slave, had been very poorly treated. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, no one ever fed him when he was a slave. The cooks just had to take pity and slip him things. I mean, he had a grudge and a justifiable one at that. Uh, He liked to introduce himself as Edwards, which is against the separate but equal. If you're a black man, you were supposed to introduce yourself as James. But he was, uh, yeah, Mr. Edwards, shook hands. 
You're not supposed to shake hands. Bold. He was bold. It was Civil Disobedience 101, of course. He wanted to take this family, his whole family, to Africa with the Universal Negro Improvement Association, but he was rejected because of his appearance. Isn't that sad? I mean... The lesson Grandpa taught her was that she was entitled as a person with the right to be treated well by everybody. Which is a great lesson for everyone to learn. Yes. So that's her house. But in the outside world, the Ku Klux Klan had gathered strength. Grandpa, in fact, slept in a um, rocking chair with a loaded shotgun for most of Rose's childhood. And everybody knew it, too. Yeah, she would hear the Klan activities outside their house. But... The clan knew he meant business. Mm-hmm. So it was more like a suicide mission if they were going to attack that house because some of them would die on the way in and they stayed away. Yeah. Because everybody knew where he was sitting. Right. So as a small child also, oh, brace yourself for this. She's five, six, seven. She worked from, and I quote, can till can't. Worked from when you can see to will you can't see. Dawn till dusk picking cotton for very, very little money. And if the children complained that their feet hurt because they didn't have shoes on. Mm-hmm. The overseer, yes, overseer, that's what they called him, even, you know, 1918, mm-hmm. 1919, mm-hmm. would make them work on their knees. Well, your feet hurt, get on your knees. Wow. I think that is just horrible. Yep. You know, still, she had a relatively good childhood despite this. I can't even believe it. But she loved to explore the woods, and she knew to avoid the rattlesnakes, and she knew where the perils were, and that kind of translated into real life, too. You know, mm-hmm. the rattlesnakes being all the white boys that would throw rocks at her on the way to school. It was almost like that kind of thing was regarded as something to just try to avoid in your daily travels, just like the dangerous snakes in the forest. Mm-hmm. And th- going to school is actually kind of foreshadowing for what happens later in her life because she's having to walk to schools and is being passed by buses carrying children her own age who just happen to have different color skin. Mm-hmm. So she's she's not allowed to be bused into school and she's walking to get her education. And even this young, it, she was famous for not taking people's crap. For example, a white boy that was roller skating shoved her off the sidewalk and she got up and dusted herself off and pushed him off his roller skates. And the mm-hmm. white mother saw right. that and freaked out on her. And Rosa Parks just merely said, as a small child to this white mother, I didn't want to be pushed, seeing as how I was not bothering him at all. And she just kept walking. Pretty obvious. Yeah. Good. Good for her. Yeah. So she stood up, even then. When she was 11, she got to go to a school called Miss White's Industrial School for Girls in Montgomery, Alabama, where there were white teachers and 300 black students. And they had the same message as Grandpa. I'll quote Rosa Parks again. I was a person with dignity and self-respect and should not set my sights lower than anyone else because I was black. We were taught to be ambitious. I think it needs to be noted that the teachers at that school were from the North, and they came down and established the schools on this, this school in the South. And what a great opportunity for her to attend it. So when she was in eighth grade, though, that school was forced to close due to southern distrust of those Yankee women. They didn't approve of the expense of educating black children. They didn't approve of the good treatment they were receiving. It's (laughs) appalling to me. So in ninth grade, she got to go to Booker T. Washington Junior High. That name should sound familiar from our Idlewild podcast. Booker T. Washington believed education is our stepping stone. And so that's a very appropriate homage to Booker T. to name a school after him. But she had to drop out. She wanted to be a teacher. 
like her mother. But she had to drop out first to nurse her grandma and then to help her mother. And she ended up making men's shirts in a factory. Dream over, Done. seemed like. Yeah, it seemed like. As a seamstress, she was able to get work, which was good. It wasn't what she wanted, obviously, and it wasn't what she was capable of intellectually. Oh, when she was 18, a mutual friend introduced her to a barber named Raymond Parks, who was the driver of a cherry red Nash car. Nice. He was also a very spiffy dresser. He was always very well-capped, immaculate suits, looking really sharp. Uh, oh, sharp. He was a sharp-dressed man. <laughs> he was also a self-educated man and very intellectually sharp. He was politically minded, keeping up with the current affairs and what was going on in the world, politics. He was aware of all of that. Well, he's just cutting people's hair as a barber. I just, lo- I just love that image. I keep thinking barbers know a lot. Oh, they know. Like barbers and bartenders are, mm-hmm. they probably know more than anyone gives them credit for. Oh, sure. They hear everything. Oh, yeah. So there was a famous civil rights case called the Scottsboro case. And in a nutshell, nine black boys were condemned to death for tossing hobos that had assaulted them off a train and raping two women who turned out later to be prostitutes. So all all these charges are completely bogus. But Raymond Parks began this secret defense fund with a committee that met two times a month. This could get him in big, fat trouble. In fact, he never let Rosa Parks attend these meetings because Mm -hmm. he said she couldn't run fast enough to get away from the police. So she couldn't come to the meeting. I mean, that's wow. I'm sure he kept her up to date on what was going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he, bold thing, asked her to marry him on their second date. I'm not quite second date material, but I married my husband about six months after I met him, so we're almost there. We were about a year. <laughs> yeah. Well, after a suitable time, they were married, and these secret meetings were moved to their living room, and Rosa Parks recalled in her memoirs, sitting on the back porch with her head in her hands as the men talked inside around a table covered with guns. <laughs> Just in case. Yeah. Can you imagine how scary that is? Seriously. No. And in my head, when you hear stuff like that, I imagine, like, almost like those 1930s gangster movies, you know, with all the gangsters sitting around the table with their guns out. But this is... This was real life. Here's the thing. Forget separate but equal. This was separate and just separate. I mean, black people were barred from hospitals, libraries, parks. This was the Jim Crow South. And I'm sure everybody's heard Jim Crow. It comes from this horrible blackface show from 1828 where a guy named Daddy Rice sang a song called Jump Jim Crow. Can you sing it? I cannot say it. <laughs> but um, legally, it was okay to have separate barbershops and theaters and schools, those iconic drinking fountains that say colored on them. Yeah. As late, I have to tell you, as 1966, my own mother got in trouble for accidentally waiting in a colored waiting room at a train station in Jacksonville, Florida. Really? Mm-hmm. 1966. 1966. Wow. Which was well after no the kidding. Civil Rights Act. I mean, yeah. so it was ingrained in that society. The buses were the worst problem because everyone needed them to get to work and to school, and the black passengers were to sit in the back, and the white passengers were to sit in the front. And bus drivers had discretion on how seriously they wanted to pursue any situation on their bus. Mm-hmm. It was a bad situation because you get a bad bus driver, and oh, one day in 1943, Rosa Parks got a bus driver named Mr. Blake, who exercised power in his little world with great abandon. It was his favorite thing to make black customers pay at the front, get off, 
walk around the bus and get in on the back door. And as the mood took him, after he took their money, he might just cruise off and leave them on the street with exhaust in their face. He was a bad man. Yeah, not a good guy. So Rosa got on his bus one day and... There was an altercation because she said she didn't want to get off and go to the back, and he told her she would and put his hands on her, and there was a little bit of a fracas, which ended up in her getting tossed off the bus. Just a little foreshadowing for later. Moving on in the timeline, Rosa got her high school diploma at the urging of her husband. I gotta like a husband like that. Yeah. And she got a job at the local Air Force base. Well, President Roosevelt had forbidden segregation on military bases in public places and transportation. So here she is on the base, at work, riding wherever she wants to on the bus, eating wherever she wants to in the canteen, and... Then she comes directly out of the gate, and it's a whole other world. And she's been quoted to say, you might say that Maxwell Base opened my eyes to how it could be. And she so wanted to vote for FDR Mm -hmm. in 1940 for his third term. Only president with a third term, Mm -hmm. by the way. But it was so difficult for blacks to register to vote. They would change the opening hours so people who were working couldn't get there. They'd make the lines go really slowly. There was intimidation, um, literacy requirements, poll tax. Basically, if you were poor and black, the chances you could even register to vote were very, very slim. In fact, Rosa Parks, they denied her registration because the stupid clerk said she failed the literacy test. How likely do you think that is? Highly unlikely. This is an educated woman raised by an educated woman. There is not a chance. So if that happened to her, you know that the people that really were functionally illiterate were screwed. There were 31 black voters in Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah. (laughs) That shocks me. You know what really set her off, though, was, okay, Pearl Harbor happened. You know, Pearl Mm -hmm. Harbor. Her little brother, Sylvester, was drafted and sent to war for a country he couldn't even vote in. Can I tell you something even more shocking about World War II? <laughs> this is going to okay. make you freak out. After okay. the war, Nazi POWs in the United States, Nazi prisoners of war could go through the front door of restaurants, and their black guards had to go in through the back. Nazis could come in through the front, front door. door. I'm sitting here in shock. It kills me. Yeah. So really, that galvanized both she and her husband. So they were very active in their local NAACP chapter. Again, going back to Ida Wells, they would work on cases through the NAACP. She was actually a volunteer secretary for the organization in their area. So they quietly worked in the background to continue to further race relations and, and civil rights just quietly. But she worked long hours. She worked all day at the department store where she was in the tailor department downstairs. And then she worked all evening into the night on cases. I mean, she was and these were, dedicated. These were cases of floggings and of rapes and murders and lynching. Well, yeah, gradually she started to get sent out to interview victims of injustice and to write letters about their cases to newspapers and to congressmen. Mm-hmm. And this sounds very parallel to Ida Wells, I think. Uh, really? When she was 34, the Alabama State NAACP convention, she gave a rousing speech to a standing ovation crowd. 
which is not the work, you would think, of a timid lady. She was known mm-hmm. as being very prim and very proper and mm-hmm. very quiet. And she was very soft-spoken. We'll link you up to some of her speeches, which I this is the part I love when we get to actually see the people that we talk about. I mean, a lot of times it predates technology, but in this case, we, you can hear her speaking. And she's very soft-spoken, but her words were impactful. And isn't public speaking the number one fear? Or maybe it's spiders. Oh, that was snakes. No, that's just me. <laughs> In Indian Yeah, exactly. Well, she overcame that fear. Uh, she said every day we are all looking for ways to challenge Jim Crow laws. And in 1953, when Rosa Parks was 39, there was, um, a little bit of a turning point in the civil rights. The Baton Rouge bus boycott, which has largely been forgotten by history. After a brief period of bus integration in Baton Rouge, officials slammed it back into place. No, forget it. Go to the back of the bus. Black churches organized a boycott. It cost the Baton Rouge Bus Company $1,600 a day. Rosa Parks and her NAACP bosses and companions were freaking out about how awesome that was. <laughs> and they remembered tales of the multi-city electric trolley boycott 50 or so years ago. Hey. Didn't we talk about that in the Ida Wells podcast? Yes, we did. And from the Ida Wells podcast, remember, the NAACP isn't the only organization that's working towards this goal. There's also all these other little women's groups and and men's groups, a church-related group, but they're all working for the same cause. Everybody is keyed in to something. Something has to happen. It seems like it's a roller coaster, and it's like click, click. Click, mm-hmm. click, click, because things are starting to happen like crazy. 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. Schools are integrated. Mm-hmm. 1955, a teenage girl, 15, who was involved in the youth group of the NAACP that Rosa Parks was involved with, boarded an empty bus. And as the bus filled up, the driver yelled out, as they often did, for four black riders to get up and give their seats to white people. Claudette wouldn't get up. And so the guy pulled over and called the police. They roughed her up, handcuffed her, yanked her off the bus, and arrested her. So is this going to be the trigger? The forces were massing to mount legal cases against the Montgomery bus line. Everything was ramping up. But then they discovered that Claudette was several months pregnant. And she had a potty mouth. She had a bad attitude. And she might not be the best person. Yeah, to, to put forehead the face. Yeah. Mm. There was another woman. Her name is Joanne Robinson and she was a college professor. She actually had gone to some of these local groups and said a bus boycott might be the way to go. She actually had the same thing happen to her. She but she was a little bolder. She sat in the front seat of the bus and when what she was asked to move refused. And the driver is just yelling at her and yelling at her until she actually I mean, that's hard to listen to. She starts crying and she flees the bus. So she wasn't arrested, but she sat down. Maybe just be that person. Maybe. Don't know. Well, so these cases were a disappointment, perhaps, to the forces of legal egoism. If only we could find the right plaintiff. If only we could. Hmm. As part of the whole process of getting this movement in motion, there was a great opportunity given to Rosa Parks to basically be trained as an activist. She went to the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee, where they talked about racial desegregation. And their message was, people are not powerless. People together make a difference. Mm -hmm. Two weeks of complete integration, like white ladies were serving her breakfast. Foreign. 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 People would greet her as Miss Parks. 
Or they would say sister or brother, which she was so uncomfortable with, and she always would call them Mr. Whatever. Yeah. She's like, oh, you know, we're not ill-bred around yeah. here. She was not comfortable with that brother-sister no. stuff, which no. is really funny. So she came back with open eyes and and some hope, I think. And on December 1st, 1955, it seemed like an ordinary day at the beginning. Um Back when department stores still did alterations, the uh-huh. Christmas season was a busy one for the tailoring department yes, in the basement. She took her morning coffee break, which retail people don't get anymore, by the way. <laughs> and it was spent making NAACP calls. And on her lunch hour, hour, which retail hour. employees don't get anymore, she spent with a civil rights lawyer. And after five, she went to the bus stop. Oh, there's too many people at the bus stop. I'll just do some errands. She went to the drugstore. Mm-hmm. This is just a day in the life of a working woman who's trying to fit two jobs in one working day. Right. That's what it is so far. Yep. And it was like other days. Yeah, this is just yeah, it wasn't like a special day. Nope. Yep. Okay, I got my stuff from the drugstore. She gets her dime out. She heads back toward the bus stop, which is a little emptier. And you know that thing you get into your mind when you're taking off to-do list, and you're like, okay, what am I making for dinner? You know, what am I going to, okay, i got to bring this the next mm-hmm. day. The she commuting just, zone. Yeah, she's yeah. totally in that zone. So the middle of the bus is empty enough. She sits next to a black man who's already sitting there. Two black ladies sitting across the aisle. The bus goes along, picks up passengers. Okay, it gets to be kind of full. And one white man was without a seat. Well, one black person couldn't just get up because the whole row had to be white. So all four of those black people had to get up. The bus driver, Blake, the same bus driver, to her horror, Uh that had thrown her off the bus 12 years ago. Right. You know, she never rode in one of his buses again. And she hadn't been paying attention this time or she wouldn't have gotten on this bus. Right. She avoided him purposely. Mm Mm-hmm. But she was in that commuting zone and didn't notice him. And he stood up, this bully. Y'all, I need these seats. And so, okay, so the other three got up. She actually turned her knees and let her companion get out of the seat and was sitting there, like you do at the movies. Mm-hmm. You, know, you just turn to the side. Mm-hmm. Oh, and she actually slid over by the window as if to emphasize that she wasn't moving. He asked her, are you going to stand up? And she calmly said, nope. And he said, well, I'm going to have you arrested. And she said in a very calm voice, you may do that. And he was completely like, oi, 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 He had no idea what to do. She wasn't yelling at him. She wasn't resisting. Hmm. He didn't know what to do. So he called his supervisor. And then he called the police. And they came, and they didn't look all that jazzed to be involved in this. Like this woman wearing white gloves, sitting calmly, looking at them peacefully. They didn't seem too excited to be pulling mm-hmm. her off the bus. Mm-hmm. But finally, you know, they, they got her off the bus. There was no handcuffing. There was no shouting. And they said, why didn't you just stand up? And she said, why do you push us around? And the police officer said, I don't know. The law is the law. So how involved was he in this? He didn't really even want to do it either, <laughs> which is good. But she was arrested, and she was taken to jail. They wouldn't let her drink any water which seems mean, denying a lady water. It does. She finally got to make a phone call, and I think it's really sick that she had to assure people on the phone call that she hadn't been beaten. Yeah, that's very telling. And I picture her her mugshot picture of her holding up her number. I mean, that's a famous, famous, you know, Rose Parks image. I just think it's very interesting the way she's holding her number. Her It's so dainty. It's like, I'm sitting here. And that's the face you have to imagine going through the whole process is she was very mellow 
Mm-hmm. I guess is a good word to describe it. Well, everyone was shocked that she was in jail. She was in jail. The church worker, that quiet lady, the one, the friendly one that did the Sunday school, <laughs> she's in jail. It was shocking. And of course, the NAACP saw this as whoa, the test case, the test case. I think the roller coaster is at the top of that first hill. But her husband freaked out, and he kept saying over and over, the white people will kill you, the white people will kill you. And he was really anti. He did not want her to stick her neck out to get it chopped off. Why did she stay seated on the bus? Why did she do it? Some people say the NAACP put her up to it. Mm-hmm. But it specifically. was an orchestrated event. They were just waiting for that right person to do it, and she was that right person given her background, given her recent training, given her intellect and her demeanor, her physical appearance. She could have been the right person. Or she could have just said, I've had enough. This is where I draw the line in the sand. But I am wondering if, I don't think it was premeditated like a setup. But she had been swimming in their philosophy for a long time. So while the NAACP didn't place her on the bus, they placed her mind in the right place to be on the bus. She allowed her mind to be placed in the right place. And it's a good thing that it was. I mean, I think it was a culmination of events. She is quoted as saying, when I declined to give up my seat, it was not that day or bus in particular. I just wanted to be free like everybody else. I did not want to be continually humiliated over something I had no control over, the color of my skin. I decided to find out what rights I really had. I think it's time to take a little break. And when we come back, we will talk about the aftermath. What happened after that one little act of civil disobedience? Rosa Parks has performed her act of civil disobedience. She has refused to move from her seat on the bus. Hijinks have ensued. And now what's going to happen? While Rosa Parks was sleeping, Joanne Robinson, now this is the woman that had gone to the mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, and suggested that there was a number of organizations that were planning a bus boycott, and he should be wise to listen to her, and he didn't. This was her opportunity to make that boycott happen. So while Rosa was sleeping, Joanne Robinson was mimeographing copies of a letter saying, now's the time for the bus boycott. This is how it's going to happen. They distributed over 35,000 flyers. Churches spoke of this boycott from the pulpit, including a preacher, previously unknown, named Martin Luther King, Jr., Children brought this flyer home from all their black schools, and somebody reproduced it in the paper, which they couldn't have asked for better publicity. So people knew, do not ride the bus on Monday. Nobody. It was the day of her trial. Right. And it was to be a statement, nobody ride the bus on Monday. At this point, Martin Luther King Jr. is expecting maybe a 60% turnout for this to happen. He would consider that a success. Well, the day came, and they all ran out to watch the buses run by, and they were empty. 
almost 100% participation. How amazing is that? I mean, days. It didn't take long because all those pieces were in place. It's like a big chess game. Well, the day of the trial, the verdict was a foregone conclusion, really. She had to be convicted to take it to a higher court. So how hard did they try, I don't know, to make her innocent? Oh, uh-huh. you know I mean? yeah, yeah. So she was fined $10 and $4 in court costs. Which seems so small. It's such a big, momentous thing. I mean, even Ida Wells was charged 300 and something for her court costs earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a rally afterward, after the trial. It was so packed. Cars were in every front yard outside of this church. The police that were trying to control the crowds couldn't get their car within blocks of this place. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King gave a rousing, electrifying, electrifying speech before this most of even Montgomery's black citizens had never heard of him. But he said, we have no alternative but to protest for many years. We have shown amazing patience. We have sometimes given our white brothers the feeling we liked the way we were being treated. But we come here tonight to be saved from the patience that makes us patient with anything less than freedom and justice. And it was like, (gasps) (laughs) yeah, well, the man fired him up. He absolutely did. This was supposed to be a one-day boycott, a one-day boycott, stretched and stretched and stretched itself to 382 days. How amazing is that? Now, what actually really impresses me the most is how the city sort of kept operating, how black people still were able to commute. At first, the taxis were offering 10-cent rides if you were black. Well, the city council came in and put an ordinance that says they can't charge any less than 45 cents. So that eliminated that option for travel. But then private taxi plan was established. The communication between people was pre-computer was just amazing. It was like a Facebook group organizing, except there's no Facebook. Right. There's actual faces <laughs> and some of these mimeograph letters. And Probably a better things. Facebook. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, a private taxi plan was established where scheduled rides were going around town, just like a bus service would. And you can be picked up on this corner and dropped off on this corner. And it was the communication. It was astonishing. The ones that make me smile are imagining the white housewives who needed to get their help to their house. So they would sneak off, pick up their help, and the help would say, oh, so-and-so needs a ride too. And wanting to get the help to their home, they had no choice. So there's these white, I can just imagine them with like sunglasses and their hair tied in a scarf, you know, driving their big Buicks or what a Cadillacs across town with their cars just filled dropping people off as part of this organization. And, of course, their husbands were enraged, but they needed their help. If you saw the movie The Help, if you read the book The Help, that's the situ- That's the environment we're in right now. And they needed their help at their house. And they made it happen. The officials at the NAACP, of course, saw Rosa Parks as a great subject for PR, but many blacks began to regard her almost as a message from God, like leading them out of this dark period. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. But one month after her trial, you know, the repercussions started to happen. She was fired from her job, and her husband quit because he was forbidden to speak of it at work. Don't speak of your wife. Don't speak of this. It's not appropriate for work, and he quit. The landlord raised their rent. The death threats started to arrive. 
Raymond started to take to drink, which kind of made their marriage was very strained. Of course. During this period. It wasn't like this happy-go-lucky boycott where nothing was happening and or only happening to the Parks family because Martin Luther King Jr.'s house was bombed. With his wife and child in it, mm-hmm. they were fine. But Edie Nixon, who was a big leader in the organization that was helping to coordinate all the effort. His house was bombed. Snipers shot at buses. Rock throwing is going on. It's not a it's not a calm time in Montgomery. Mm-mm. Rose's case had been combined with some others. They were kind of playing the odds. If there's four cases kind of combined, if one gets disqualified for some reason, they don't have to start over. Mm-hmm. And unexpectedly, it was Rose's case that was decided not to be strong enough to move forward because... When she had refused to get up, there were not any available seats to move to. I see. And they thought, mm, we can't really, that's not strong. We can't, like, protest. We can't take that one all the way. And so Rose's part of the case was largely dropped. And that was disappointing. She's the most famous one. But the other three moved forward. Didn't matter. She was the face of it. She was the face of this whole movement. And the death threats and the the hate got so intense that some friends finally convinced her, please move up north. Please move up north to Detroit. And she moved away from the only home she'd ever really known. Mm -hmm. But the letters of praise kept coming, too. Don't get me wrong. All over the world, Ghana, India, South Africa, all over the planet. She was a beacon for the oppressed. Even Kofi Annan of the United Nations said Mm -hmm. that he, as a child, had heard about her work and was uh, inspired. Uh, It's amazing. Condoleezza Rice has said that this period influenced her career. Colin Powell has said that she influenced. She was really the lightning rod for everything. She officially has become a symbol, I think. And I think it is so strange that this whole time she's working at menial jobs and simultaneously giving lectures all over the country. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting. I think it kind of reminds me of modern day the bloggers who have these huge followings. They go to their day job and they're not really known. They're, they go to their IT job and <laughs> get stupid questions. And then they come home and they, they have you know, a million people that are reading what they're writing. It's yeah, it's kind of similar to that in modern day. Well, and then here's another dichotomy. Her outside was so demure and prim and proper, and her inside was so tough and impatient, and she was really not a supporter of nonviolence when it came down to it. Um, you know, like Martin Luther King advocated patience and um, return brutality with love, and she really said that she couldn't get there. She really, in fact, admired the work and the procedures of Malcolm X, which if you saw her, you couldn't really reconcile them no, to is, each other. No. Well, civil rights moved on, as it is wont to do, culminating, I think, in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibited segregation in public accommodations. So we'll link you to some civil rights websites, but getting back to her personal life, this is a very tough time for her in person. One by one, her family members uh, started to die of cancer. Mm -hmm. She was robbed and beaten in her own home by a robber who recognized her. Who recognized her and still managed... He slapped her on his... Punched her on his way out of the house after stealing her stuff. Are you Rosa Parks? Cool, give me all your stuff. Bam. Punched her in the face. He was found and convicted and was sent to jail. But Mm -mm. still... Mm -mm.
and we are back. Rosa Parks has performed her act of civil disobedience. She has refused to move from her seat on the bus. Hijinks have ensued. And now what's going to happen? Rosa Parks was worried that the young people of America were starting to take their rights for granted. Her generation had carefully kept a lot of the bad parts of Jim Crow away from their children to protect them. And then they started to realize it was a bad plan because people were not moving forward. People were taking things for granted that had been a struggle. And so Rosa Parks started a scholarship foundation, and she started a civil rights education program, which included bus tours of famous sites. Mm -hmm. She authored two books, all while speaking, all over the country. She also actively campaigned against apartheid in South Africa. She was well known for that. Here's one word on symbolism. When she was 81... The Ku Klux Klan wanted to sponsor a part of US 55 near St. Louis. You know those blue signs? It's like, we are going to clean this section of road, and we're so-and-so insurance company. Maine, sick Mrs. Smith's second grade class sponsors this section of highway. And, of course, the government's like, I knew. But they can't. They can't. If they don't let the Ku Klux Klan put their name on a sign, they can't let, you know, Joe's car wash make a sign either. And so they decided to vote and make that section of highway the Rosa Parks Highway as a nice counterbalance. Mm-hmm. That's hilarious, <laughs> by the way, and good. And then they didn't even ask her. They didn't ask her or anything. And then they told her about it afterwards, and here's her response, typically humble. Well, it's nice to be thought of. <laughs> That's awesome. That is, like, the most awesome thing. She's a public figure. They, you could use their name, I guess. I guess. I don't know. know. Well, she didn't mind. She's always humble and self-effacing, even Mm -hmm. though she's receiving, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Congressional Gold Medal. I mean, Bill Clinton wanted her to sit by him (laughs) on TV. (laughs) It's amazing. She was named by Time Magazine as one of the 20 most influential figures of the century. Accolades and awards are presented to this woman and is very humble about it, and that's yeah. Lover. Well, when she was 92, she died of natural causes in her home in Montgomery and in Detroit. There was an homage. All front rows of all buses were covered with black ribbons. Mm-hmm. For three full days, mm-hmm. the Montgomery buses were covered. I mean, that statement alone is t- would be extremely touching. The first memorial service was held in Montgomery at her church. Uh, where Condoleezza Rice was one of the speakers at her funeral. This is 2005. This is right. within living memory of every human being listening to this podcast right. right now. Right. And then her body was taken from Alabama via vintage 1955 bus all the way to Lyon State in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. What an amazing honor that is. Tens of thousands of people came to pay their respects over this period of time. You should see the articles. The articles written, any simple Google of obituary will reveal the depth of feeling that this country had for Rosa Parks. Um, Finally, she was taken to Detroit for a third and final memorial service and her funeral. And that is where she is in Detroit, alongside her husband and her mother. Well, Rosa Parks made one simple decision that changed the whole nation. She is called the mother of the modern-day civil rights movement, which is absolutely a title that's totally perfect. And she lived to see the results of her actions, something many civil rights activists did not. Mm -hmm. She stood up by sitting down and became a legend. 
some links that we can give you. There is a really good biography of Rosa Parks called simply Rosa Parks by Douglas Brinkley. And then Rosa Parks wrote her own autobiography called Rosa Parks, My Story, um, which I highly advocate reading. It gives so much background on her childhood. There is an amazing kids book that was an honorable mention in the Caldecott Awards called Rosa by Nikki Giovanni and Brian Collier. Now, Caldecott Awards are for picture books. And so this one's very easy to understand that illustrations are very good. Mm-hmm. The Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development, which is the organization that they developed to continue the education of, of youth, um, has a website, and it's rosaparks.org. We will link you to that. The Academy of Achievement has an ebook that's free on iTunes that's geared towards 7th to 11th graders. And it, apparently, I don't have an iPad, so I don't know. It's supposedly interactive, like you can touch the screen and have things happen. So that would be kind of a, I mean, it's free. Hey, woo! So we'll send you a link to that. What else? Oh, we have a movie. The 2002 Rosa Parks story, which portions of it are available online. You can get it from Netflix as a DVD. It's not streaming, but it stars Angela Bassett. And at first I had to get my mind around the Stella got a groove on. I'm like, Angela Bassett, she's not meek, but she's an actress, and that's what she does, and she's wonderful in it. Well, and since I never saw Stella got a groove back, <laughs> I had no problem with it at all. I think physically Angela Bassett looks a lot like Rosa Parks. And she does. And when you think of Angela Bassett in real life, you think this very physically strong. I mean, she's got some guns on her, but she was able to really transform her appearance in, yes, a lot like Rosa Parks. There is a good, it's a complicated link, so I'm not going to say it out loud, link it up. It's uh, on the Scholastic.com site. Um, speaking of interactive, it'll say things like, how do you think Rosa felt about this? Mm-hmm. Click here for an interview. It's very interesting because it'll send you to multimedia sites. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you do if this happened? Go here and take the test. It's a very good site for 7th to ninth graders, maybe. And our favorite series, American Experience, has a uh, miniseries called Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Movement, in which Rosa Parks does play a part, and I think it is worthy of watching all of it. Oh, absolutely. Even even that Rosa Parks is, you know, just a little part of that, but I think it's a very, very good, well-done educational thing. And what about the bus? The bus was retrieved from a field in Alabama, and at the cost of $300,000, was refurbished and is now sitting on display. You can go on the bus at the Henry Ford Museum in Michigan, Dearborn, Michigan, and you can go on the bus. Uh, We'll also link you to the organization that helped fund the preservation of that bus. It's Save America's Treasures program through the National Trust for Preservation, and they, they're doing some pretty amazing things so that objects such as the bus can be restored and appreciated and the stories behind them understood, but for future generations. And it gives me tingles. Look at hair standing on edge. How much would the Smithsonian pay for that? I don't know. Oh, and my goodness. In Michigan, I don't think they're getting it. Oh, <laughs> Let me just leave you with a quote from Rosa Parks herself. I am leaving this legacy to all of you to bring peace, justice, equality, love, and a fulfillment of what our lives should be, the dream of freedom and of peace. Thanks for listening. Bye. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehistorychicks with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like to send real life, 
Please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. You know the wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. The wheels on the bus go round and round, all through the town. I said the wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. The wheels on the bus go round and round, all through the town. Let me tell you about the bus. Let's go!